Hello, Daniel Barnett here, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Employment Law Matters. In this episode, I'm speaking with Michael Rubenstein, the editor of the IRLRs, the Industrial Relations Law Reports, and the organiser of the 22QCs Conference and the Discrimination Law Conference. In this episode, you'll learn... Why Mickey set up the IRLRs in the 1970s and what the impact of free legal information on the internet has been. You'll discover why Mickey might not invite speakers back to the conferences he organises. And you'll also hear me asking Mickey a number of employment law questions in our quick fire quiz. Just before we start the episode, this is what Susie O'Brien has to say about the HR inner circle. If you're looking for a steady stream of thorough, pragmatic and easily digestible employment law advice, the HR Inner Circle is a great place to be. The HR Inner Circle is a membership club I run for smart, ambitious HR professionals. Do have a look at the website www.hrinnercircle.co.uk. I started my conversation with Michael Rubenstein by asking him what gave him the idea to set up the IRLRs, back in the 1970s. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. Uh, So, Michael, what made you set up the IRLRs? Well, back in 1971, I had started a company called Industrial Relations Services, and we were publishing a magazine called Industrial Relations Review and Report. And uh, along came the Industrial Relations Act. Indeed, the Industrial Relations Act is one of the reasons why we had set up the company in the first place. And uh, we started covering the first decisions uh, of the industrial tribunals as they were then uh, in industrial relations review and report. But we found that unfair dismissal, when that came into force, there was like an explosion of cases. I mean, employment law, or as it was called then, either industrial law or master and servant law, had been virtually non-existent in terms of the number of cases. The, before, 19, before the unfair dismissal legislation came in, there were hardly any cases uh, at all. But uh, once it did, we found we couldn't cover these properly in a magazine like Industrial Relations Report, and it seemed that there was a need for uh, a specialist law report dealing with uh, employment law. And so we decided, why not? Let's have a go and set it up. Was it a hard sell originally to people who you wanted to sell it to? Did they need some persuasion that this is worth buying? Yeah. Well, when we started, we had a good market amongst uh, personnel managers. Indeed, that was the prime market for many years. People who had to actually apply for law rather than lawyers. Don't forget that also in the early 1970s, there weren't that many specialist employment lawyers. It's all been uh, a much more recent development. But we did, yeah, we had lots of resistance. The IRL looked very different to other law reports with its big uh, A4 size, its purple cover, the numerical indexing system, which is based on the uh, American Shepherd system, and indeed the fact that we had an editorial that dared to criticize judicial decisions and say, Maybe this isn't right. You know, maybe the judge forgot to look at this, that, and the other. Uh, that didn't go down very well at all with a lot of people. So it was seen as being unconventional and wasn't accepted. And uh, part of that, of course, was that I, I am not and have never been uh, a barrister. And IRLR 
as uh, Bill Wedderburn, who was on our advisory panel, used to say, funding was is the, was the first law report edited by a non-barrister to be cited in the House of Lords in a thousand years. So uh, uh, there was some resistance to it. It was overcome in one very notable case, which might be worth mentioning. In about 19, we had an advisory panel, an editorial advisory panel, which existed for over 30 years, but never met once. But it helped in the beginning to give us a certain amount of credibility. And on that advisory panel was uh, a barrister called Peter Payne. Peter Payne later became a judge, but in his day, he was like the John Handy of his day. He was the barrister of choice for trade unions. And uh, I'd never met him, but he was a good friend of Bill Wedderburn's. And Bill suggested him to be on the panel, and he agreed. Lunchtime, I got a telephone call from him saying, I'm in the Court of Appeal. I want to cite to a case in IRLR, because you're the only ones who reported it. And uh, forgive me, but I don't really know very much about IRLR, even though I should, because I'm on the advisory panel. Uh, Can you tell me, uh, are you a barrister? I said, no. He said, uh, solicitor? No, no, I'm not that either. What about your associate editor, Yvonne Foss, who went through the same thing? She was neither a barrister nor a solicitor. So he said, okay, thank you very much. I'll report that to the Court of Appeal. So at the, later in the day, he phoned back and said, well, I told this to Lord Denning. And Lord Denning pondered for a minute and said, hmm, a commendable example of free enterprise. <laughs> now, you, you say you're not a barrister or a solicitor, of course. You recently were appointed a bencher of Middle Temple, which is quite an accolade. Yes, I was very, very pleased to, to be appointed as an honorary. I was delighted to be uh, benched at Middle Temple. I'm an honorary bencher because I, precisely because I'm not a barrister. Uh, but it is, it, it's certainly a, a great honor. Now, where, where's that accent? Is it Brooklyn? Yes, it is. Well, I, if you think I saw a Brooklyn accent. After uh, you, you sound like you sound like a man from Brooklyn who's had about fifteen cigars in the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, a man from Brooklyn who's lived in in this country for uh, over fifty years, six, nearly sixty years. What made you move to England? I just dropped over for to do a quick postgraduate degree at the LSE, and you stayed. And I stayed. Yeah. No problem with visas. No, no. I, I had a, a work permit because I was. Uh, lecturing part-time at the Brixton School of Building because the Brixton School of Building needed someone to deal with their to teach economics. And it was assumed because I was at the London School of Economics that I was a latter-day John Maynard Keynes. Of course, I really knew very little about economics, but I knew enough to say one, at least one lesson ahead of my students. So I had that job, and then I got a job at uh, Incomes Data Services, uh, IDS. and so. Uh, since I had a work, I, that gave me, a, that's how I'm an automatic entitlement to residency. And later I became a British citizen, as well as an American citizen. So back to the IRLRs, uh, you started them in the early 70s. How long did it take for them to become profitable? Not long, to be honest. The thing with the su- subscription journals, uh, I mean, one wouldn't start a journal uh, now in the same way. But at that time, there was very little competition. And um, you have the, even if it wasn't profitable, you have the positive cash flow of a subscription journal. People pay you in advance. You owe them a lot of journals. But uh, 
they get you have their money. They give you money in advance, which was a nice uh, way to survive. It was difficult for a while, but we managed it. And much like a yacht, it's often said that a man's proudest moment is when he buys his first yacht and his second proudest moment is when he manages to sell it. Uh, you sold the Ira Lars to LexisNexis a few years ago. What well, was the thinking behind that? Well, we didn't sell it to LexisNexis. We sold it to a man called Andrew Brody, who had been the managing director of Kroners. He bought it from us in 1982. At that time, uh, my company had about uh, three journals and three bulletins and a, tra- and a conference company. We had Industrial Relations Review report. We had something called European Industrial Relations Review. We had bulletins about health and safety, about pain, about employment law and IRA law as well. And uh, my colleague, Yvonne, and I found that we were spending most of our time running a company and not writing. And so when we came, got a reasonable offer, we decided we would accept it. And uh, uh, Andrew Brody then, 20 years later, sold it on to LexisNexis for a, a huge, absolute fortune. Uh, <laughs> Were you still a shareholder at that stage? No, no, no. They bought us out completely. And you're, you're still writing the editorials every month? Yeah. I, in 19, when we sold them in, in April 1982, we agreed. I agreed a, a rolling editorial contract with uh, to, to do the monthly highlights commentary and the uh, choose the cases to be reported. That's how most of the head notes. But uh, that contract is rolled on uh, forevermore, and uh, we're coming up to the fifth of the year. Do you have a successor in mind? Have you got a succession plan built? Uh, no, I don't. No. What's the highlight of running the IRLRs from a business perspective? Was there one particular moment in the, in the time that you were the manager and owner as opposed to the editor that you thought, wow, I love doing this? No, I wouldn't say so, Daniel. No, I, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't looking to particularly be an entrepreneur in that sense. I enjoyed much more the editorial side of it, which is, again, as I say, that's one reason why we sold it. Are there any regrets over selling it? Not really. Uh, I've had a very good editorial contract for many years. It allows me allowed me to do many of the things. I got involved in, uh, with the European Commission to do a project on sexual harassment. I got involved with lots of uh, uh, consultancy and advisory things, drafting codes of practice, etc. So, yeah, I think uh, uh, it was a reasonable move. Yeah, I'm quite happy with it. No regrets. Now, technically in court, the ICRs, the Industrial Cases Reports, take precedence and, and all the practice directions, say, cite the ICRs in preference to the IRLRs. But I don't think there's a barrister in the country who would cite the ICRs in preference to the IRLRs. The IRLRs are just the default uh, law report. How does it feel that another set of law reports is, is technically regarded as superior to yours? Well, um, there may be reasons for it. I'm not quite sure what they are. At one point, there was a difference in that. Uh, in IRLR, we've never sent the headnotes to the judges for them to approve. We've just gone, written them ourselves, and uh, on the basis that uh, we would be accurate, and that's all there was to it. And that allowed us to publish cases months, sometimes years, before the ICRs, which was one of the big USPs uh, for many years. Uh, I don't know how ICR runs at the moment whether they sent what whether there are any technical reasons why their 
report should be cited in preference. Uh, I rather think of this is uh, an example of uh, just uh, legal tradition, which has become outmoded. Well, interestingly, um, you mentioned speed and that you beat the ICRs on speed because of not needing the judge's approval. But now we've got the internet as a source of information. There's always going to be the fact that people are going to find legal reports quicker via Bailey or just general employment or websites than they will be able to get to those reports in a print publication. Has that affected the way you approach the IRLRs or indeed the business model behind it? Well, I think it's probably affected the business model for sure. There are fewer selling points now than there once were. As you rightly say, people can get the text of the the report uh, online in many Solicitors firms, which have become, I suppose, the main market now for our law, would be employing PSLs to go through the cases as they come out, and people will be getting the information from you for a start. And uh, your business model is much more attuned, perhaps, to the 2020s than uh, the old model of a, of a law report. But what I think uh, IRA law can do is two things. One, uh, by selecting cases, uh, it can highlight, it can flash, it can illuminate what are the really important cases to fo- for people to focus on. And secondly, I would hope that my editorial commentary would give a, a steer as to why cases are important and uh, what their implications might be. You also published the Equality Law Reports. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Well, they, I did publish them, but sadly that, that they were the proof that, uh, that business model doesn't work, uh, in the 21st century. The equality law reports we published, I think, for three years. They looked good. They filled the need of, uh, covering, uh, specialist discrimination case law cases. Uh, when we closed them down, people said, Oh, I miss the equality law reports very much. But we never, it never came anywhere near breaking even. And it was uh, quite demanding as well because we covered employment tribunal cases as well. So there was a lot of research uh, involved. So sadly, uh, we had to shut it down. So I suppose with equality law, it's such a niche area that you've got to be a real employment law nerd to want to read cases, first instance cases on equality law because so many of them turn on their facts. If it's not commercially sensitive, can you give some indication of how many sets of the equality law reports you'd sell? Under 200. Yeah, so it's, it's tough to make a profit on that sort of level, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but then, then, of course, there's the Equal Opportunities Review, which has been going for about 35, 40 years, in which you acquired in the mid-2000s. But I think that's also closed down as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, equal, I was asked to start Equal Opportunities Review by the aforementioned Andrew Brody when he owned... Uh, Industrial Relations Services, and I edited it, or co-edited it from its inception in 1985. In 2001, I mentioned that uh, he sold Industrial Relations Services, including Industrial Relations Law Reports and Equal Opportunities Review, to LexisNexis. LexisNexis decided, after a few years, that they didn't want to, to have editorial staff on these journals, so they sold Equal Opportunities Review to their sister company, Read Business Information, RBI, all part of the Reed Elsevier Group. They wanted this in order to 
use the content for their portal. They were starting Expert HR, which is still going. It's a very useful uh, compendium of, of information. Uh, Expert HR uploaded all my articles that I'd written for Equal Opportunities Review onto their website. Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, they never got my permission uh, and I never signed a copyright waiver form. So we we got involved in potential litigation. That litigation was settled by them giving me equal opportunities review. Unfortunately, uh, again, it uh, turned out not to be a profitable enterprise. And uh, although it, it was, uh, we've struggled valiantly for a number of years to make a go of it, uh, basically we couldn't. And so we had to shut it down in uh, 2015, end of 2015, I think it was. I'll be coming back to ask Michael Rubinstein some more questions in just a moment, including about the various conferences he organises, about his humanism and subjecting him to a quick fire employment law quiz. Before I do, a quick mention of my new YouTube channel, www.youtubelegal.co.uk. It's a brand new legal explainer channel where you can learn about employment law, criminal law, family law and other aspects of law, including all sorts of career information. Please do have a look at it, youtubelegal.co.uk. There's a ton of videos there. I upload about two a week, and they are a fabulous source of free employment law and other law information. www.youtubelegal.co.uk. Hit the subscribe button and hit the notification bell, and that way you'll discover exactly when a new video gets uploaded. And now back to Michael Rubenstein. Michael Rubinstein, you are also, as well as being a well-known publisher, a prolific conference organiser. Your your best-known conference is 22 QCs. Can you explain what that is? Well, it's uh, we take we look at uh, the hot issues in employment law uh, at over the, the next coming year and try to set out uh, 22 really interesting topics and. We choose from amongst the many uh, employment law QCs, uh, of whom we, uh, we could be doing really 66 QCs, and we wouldn't be scraping the barrel. There's so many talented employment law QCs, but we choose uh, 22 of them in a particular year to speak about it. So, for instance, we've got from your own chambers, we have two speakers this year, uh, Andrew Short and Andrew Allen, uh, are speaking. And I hope uh, at some point in the future you'll be uh, joining the ranks and we can call on you as well. I did actually, I remember saying to you at a party a few years ago that I was thinking of setting up a conference called 23 QCs and you didn't (laughs) think it was very funny. (laughs) But one of the interesting things about the 22 QCs model is that each of the speakers only gets 30 minutes, which is quite a short amount of time to talk about a big subject like union recognition or unfair dismissal or discrimination. Is there anything lost by keeping the sessions so short? Well, yes, of course. Uh, by definition, the longer the session, the more information you can impart. But I think the discipline of having to uh, do it in half an hour can be quite helpful to, to speakers. And no one's expecting them to cover the whole area uh, of unfair dismissal or training and recognition. Their, their brief is to 
cover recent developments and focus on the most important of those. And it has the advantage, we do 11 sessions per day. And if someone is uh, bored by session number four, session number five is going to come along pretty quickly. What's the best conference venue you know of that does a really good lunch? Because that's the thing that I think is most important with conferences. Well, I'm afraid uh, right at the moment, the best venue is probably going to be your own kitchen. <laughs> In better times, where does a good lunch? Uh, I don't really have a good answer to that, Daniel. We, we, we were, our conference is scheduled, or was scheduled, to be at the Crown Plaza Blackfriars this year, where they have a, a, a very good buffet. But um, it's not looking great for a live conference at the end of September. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to name names, obviously, but has there ever been a speaker that you've decided not to reinvite the following year because their speaking wasn't quite at the level you'd hoped for? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, there have been the occasional speaker who either has not understood what was required or in some cases. The other uh, aspect of this is that all the speakers uh, are told several times in advance that they must stick to time. And uh, because with 11 speakers, you can imagine, when we have live conferences and I do an appraisal form, evaluation form, I, I include myself there as chair and ask for comments. And I can, be, I can make the most incisive contributions and ask really probing questions. But the only comment anybody ever makes is, he kept to time when I'm, I'm chairing. And some of the speakers, if you, you know, you can get ones that uh, if they run over by five or 10 minutes, it screws up the whole day. And no, I wouldn't, they wouldn't be invited back. Is there ever an issue with the speakers not turning up on the day? Suddenly saying, oh my goodness, I've been booked for court. Really sorry, here's a substitute. And they send somebody who you wouldn't have picked for yourself. Well, there's never been, unfortunately, I'm touching wood now. We've never had a, a situation where someone, has not turned up at all, or where they haven't, well, we've managed to get, to, to get a substitute QC for anyone who hasn't been able to come. Sure, there are times when speakers simply can't get out of a case that comes along, and the, the normal form would be that they would get some another silk in their chambers to do the session. I said I wasn't going to ask you who you wouldn't use again, but but can you give a name for one or two speakers who you think are absolute stars? Not so much because they're brilliant barristers per se, but because they're incredibly charismatic stage speakers and who you would have every single time if you could get them. Well, that is really invidious, Daniel. I, I, I think I, I'm going to pass on that one. Now, the pricing for um, 22 QCs is, is probably at the uh, higher end of the market. Is it £800 for the two days, something like that? Well, that would be the case if it was live. With if it was live. Et cetera. Yeah. When it's on, um, it's. What made you decide to pitch the conference at the high-end price-wise, which I imagine causes some price resistance, rather than, for example, my business model with conferences is I charge less but probably get more bums on seats. Yeah, you true. earn a similar money by charging more and getting fewer bums on seats. What made you go for that higher price model? Well, I'm not sure we earn as much money as you. That's a, a, an assumption that uh, would remain to be seen. But I, I thought that it's reasonable. I think we divide £400, say, by 11 uh, per session. You're not talking about uh, to hear, hear one of the 
you know, the top QCs in the country talk about analyze cases. You're talking about, uh, you know, 40 pounds or whatever it works out at per, se- per session. So it didn't seem unreasonable to me. You also organize the discrimination law conference every year. If someone had to choose which conference to go to out of discrimination law and 22 QCs, which would be the better one? Well, I, I suppose it depends on, on where their main focus is. If they're general employment lawyers, they should come to 22 QCs because they're going to be, while there'll be five or six discrimination focused sessions, there'll be a whole lot of others as well. The discrimination law conference is run with the TUC and has a different uh, sort of framework and uh, a different vibe because you've got, first of all, it's a huge conference. This year we had uh, 299 delegates, but many of them were trade union officials or trade union legal officers. So it's got a different vibe as well. This episode is supported by Beverly Hills Bakery, offering worldwide gift delivery of baskets and tins filled with freshly baked mini muffins, cookies, brownies and cupcakes. A perfect thank you gift for your staff. Find out more at beverlyhillsbakery.com. That's B-E-V-E-R-L-Y, beverlyhillsbakery.com, or by using the links in the show notes below. You're a former chair of the Industrial Law Society. I think you're now honorary vice president of the ILS. What do you see as the difference between the Industrial Law Society and other organizations such as the Employment Law Association or the Disability Law Association? Does the ILS have its own unique selling point? Yeah, I think it does. I think the ILS has always been a much more heterodox organization, if I can put it that way. It appeals not just to uh, employment lawyers, but also to HR people, trade union officials, academics who were not uh, qualified lawyers, but who were teaching employment law or involved in employment law. So it's a, a broader church. I think that, that that's the historic difference, whether, uh, I mean, ELA has, has broadened itself as well. But I think it, that the historic difference is that ILS. And ILS was originally an academic organization, and it still has, I think, more academic overtones. There are big differences between the meetings. If you go to uh, an ILS meeting, you will have a distinguished speaker talking for 45 minutes, and then 45 minutes of questions and discussion. That is the norm. If you go to an ELA meeting, you'll also have a distinguished speaker, but basically the audience, instead of asking questions, will be taking, they'll be taking detailed notes. And uh, be a lot, I think that usually be quite a lot less uh, discussion. You're, you're well known in legal circles as a humanist, and I think you're a patron of Humanist UK. Yeah. I know that a lot of very well or many well-loved celebrities are humanists, uh, such as David Deal, Stephen Fry, Ricky Gervais, Patrick Stewart. What is it about humanism that attracts you? Is it the celebrity lifestyle or is it something else? Oh, it's just that <laughs> I, I don't see a celebrity lifestyle being associated with humanism. There are two things, positive and negative. The, the negative is that uh, it's not rel- a religion and it doesn't have all the uh, hang-ups that Orthodox religions have in terms of their 
rules and prohibitions, etc. But on the positive side, um, it has a morality like religions, and uh, it allows you to express your, your your feelings about your fellow human beings uh, with and how they behave in this world. And one of the distinguishing features of humanism, of course, is that it doesn't. There's no belief in the afterlife. So we, it's you know we're here, we live our life, and it should be the best life that we we can live. Michael Rubenstein, now I'm going to put your knowledge to the test here, and I'm going to give you an employment law quiz, a quick fire quiz. So let's see what you think of these very very important legal questions. What's your favourite tribunal building? Well, that's a good question, uh, Daniel, because one of the features of my career my nearly 50 years in employment law, is that I never go to an employment tribunal building. So I have no idea what they're like. I mean, I've been, obviously, to the one on Kingsway, but I don't go to, I, I don't go to court. I don't go to cases, either in employment tribunal or the employment appeal tribunal or the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court. Where would you shop? British home stores or Iceland frozen foods? Well, I don't think you'd get very much in British home stores anymore. So I suppose I'd have to get my stuff from Iceland. Who's the best-looking employment lawyer in the UK, male or female? You, you can choose. No, I didn't answer that one. Who's the funniest past president of the Employment Appeal Tribunal? Patrick Elias can be quite droll. What's the employment case with the silliest name? Well, I recall Fatty against Breckers uh, is a quite good, unusual name. can't tell you very much about the case, but I do remember the name. What would you say to someone who says employment laws become too complicated over the last few decades? I would say that employment law has become too complicated, but it's not really the fault of uh, the judges. Uh, it's more the fault of the legislature in the way the legislation has been drafted. But uh, it would be helpful to, to have it less complicated and less esoteric and for ordinary people to be able to understand their rights a bit better. Many years ago, you predicted that discrimination was going to be one of the big growth areas of the next couple of decades. Looking at things as they stand at the moment, what do you think the biggest growth areas for employment law over the next 10 years are likely to be? Well, if you mean new areas that are not currently the subject of of legislation, uh, the next areas, so to speak, I think there's a possibility of... uh, more movement on socioeconomic rights. The Welsh government, the Scotland, this, there already is a duty on public authorities in Scotland to take account of the socioeconomic effect of decisions that they make. And the Welsh government has recently introduced this. Basically, what we're talking about here is class discrimination, a right to bring a claim because uh, well, in, at the moment, you can't bring it. It's not enforceable in the employment tribunals, but it could be enforceable in future employment tribunals. It could be a further head of discrimination. And then, of course, there's the whole employment status issue, which obviously is developing, changing rapidly now. And it's unclear how that's going to pan out and whether... Uh, There'll be new legislation which will clarify it or whether it's going to be left to the courts. Finally, Michael Rubenstein, for the last 33 years, you've been publishing a 
discrimination guide, an annual discrimination guide. What changes from year to year that justifies a new edition? Well, each year we've got a number of cases. I think last year there were 25 reported decisions on discrimination. All of them set out new principles. If they didn't set out new principles, really, they wouldn't be reported in the first place. And that makes some of the old principles of law redundant, obsolescent. So we try to distill these principles and put them into a framework for the particular protected characteristics so that people can look at, at and see what is what principles govern that particular area of law. Is it a publication that every law firm should have, or is it uh, aimed at those that specialize in discrimination? I would hope it's one that every law firm should have, unless they don't have any discrimination cases. And what month of the year does it come out? February. So there's a relatively new edition, about three months old. Yes, exactly. Where can people get hold of it? They can either get hold of it from Michael Rubenstein Conference's website or from legal bookshops like Wildings and others. This year, a new feature of, of the Scrimmage Guys, and it's available not only in print and paper, but also as a PDF, so people can have it on their computer and take it around with them. Thank you so much. That was Michael Rubenstein. And you can find out more about him and find out more about his publications and his conferences at rubensteinconferences.com. And you'll find a link to that website and also to Mickey's Twitter account in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Do have a look at www.youtubelegal.co.uk and subscribe to the free legal updates. Also, please do have a look at www.hrinnercircle.co.uk, the HR Inner Circle being the membership club I run for smart, ambitious HR professionals. I'm Daniel Barnett. Thank you for listening. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.